day and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. I'll just apologise for my weird voice. I'm just recovering from a cold, but I was very desperate to get this recorded and out in time. Because in episode 61 today, we're going to look at a rather impressive project which rescued Australia from the tyranny of distance, dragging her into a more modern world of speedy international communication. Communication over distance has always been important. The first Australians had used smoke to signal to groups further along the coast, warning of the arrival of strangers, as Cook sailed northward in 1770. When the British first sent its convicts out to the new colonies established in Australia to house them far away from decent folk in Blighty, I'm sure there would have been many who would have been pleased never to hear from them again. But as we have discussed in earlier episodes, trying to manage the colonies remotely, operating on outdated instructions from a country halfway around the world, in a time before the ubiquitous Zoom meeting, it was not always plain sailing for the hapless governors. The long-delayed communications afforded by the existing written letter transported by dodgy sailboat model no doubt contributed to the fractious nature of early governance here surely contributing to the recall of one governor after another. Basically, for nearly a century after colonisation, nobody really knew what was going on in any timely way, though missives were regularly sent off with all seriousness. And as the colony developed commodities that Britain was interested in, and as the gold rushes began, a more urgent desire for the exchange of news and information was evident on both sides of the globe. Internal communications were just as important, with mail services set up domestically in the early 1800s to address local business and domestic needs. Regular coach or horse transport services, and later rail and bicycle, operated between most major settlements. But the delay in international business communications became a most inconvenient barrier to trade negotiations. Certainly, within the colonies, the gold rush provided the added impetus for early telecommunications technologies to be embraced. Sailing ships, bringing news and personal mail from England to landfall in one of the Australian colonies, typically took between four and six months, depending on need for supply stops and the cooperation of the weather. That's a long time to wait for news, and even longer if one was waiting for return instructions or advice, already six months delayed in the outgoing request in the first place. The far-flung colonies were always desperately out of date in relation to news from around the world concerning wars or wool sales or new scientific developments and the like. The new steamships could reduce that travel time, not being entirely at the mercy of the wind for propulsion, but it still took around two months or so, even for a fast trip. Having to physically carry hard copy across the globe was a great drag on the exchange of ideas. So we're going to look at the enterprise undertaken by the South Australian government in the 1870s to bring the latest innovations in speedy communication to the colonies of Australia. The construction of the overland telegraph line through the centre of Australia across all but unexplored land. Well, unexplored by the colonists at least. It's been a fair gap since my last podcast release, and a number of you have taken the trouble to let me know how much you're enjoying the show. So I just want to say some thank yous from this month and last month. 
My thanks go to Brian R and Maria G, Alan J of Jonathan T, a fan of the Aussie History Podcasts all the way from Finland. Thanks, Jonathan. Carmel M, Philip P, Jessica H, Brent J, Derek D, Joseph P and Michael G. It was just tremendous your support this month. I want to really thank you so much. I uh, wanted to let you know I'm in the process of purchasing now a couple of um, reference books which I'd had my eye on for a long time, which will really help with the um, research on topics going forward. So thank you all so much. Really appreciate it. I've also got another podcast recommendation at the end of the story today. So stay tuned for that as well. Now let's have a look at how the Overland Telegraph line came about. Volta, Ampere, Osted, Galvani and Faraday, amongst others, all contributed to the development of harnessing electricity for various uses. Transmitting electrical current over wire, especially over insulated wire where the losses were reduced, allowed for long-distance transmission of electrical current and breaking that transmission on and off in a controlled way meant the electric current itself could be co-opted as coded messaging. And so the idea of an electric telegraph was subsequently identified as a most valuable development. Telegraph, from the Greek words tele, meaning distant, and graphene, meaning to write, allowed the transmission of electrical signals that could be coded and then deciphered at the other end, allowing speedy, almost instant communication. Up until the mid-1800s, communication over distance had pretty much been limited to the existing transport options, such as riders carrying messages and mail, shipping and later rail, or by sending codes via a visual line of sight, such as the French-developed semaphore system of coded flag placement signals and the like. Indeed, semaphore signalling was well used here at most important ports to advise of shipping arrivals, and systems even ran between some convict outposts, such as between Port Arthur and Hobart, to alert authorities of escapes or send other important information, though it was, of course, always limited in use to the daylight and when weather conditions made visibility possible. To be able to speedily transmit more nuanced messaging over vast distance would completely change the nature of communications. And indeed, the electric telegraph, once adopted, remained the primary fast communication option until telephones were widely adopted throughout the community. But the telegraph-adopted Morse code still has a place even amongst today's suite of largely digital defence and emergency communications. Various eminent men continued working on equipment that would facilitate widespread telegraphic communication, including the Englishman Charles Wheatstone, but the telegraphic operating technique which emerged as the most simple, easily operated and efficient code system for transmitting broken current as a coded language was developed by American Samuel Morse and Alfred Vail, and was improved further into the now recognisable dot-dash sounds by Friedrich Gerd in 1848. Other systems were still being worked on, and several of these were on display at Prince Albert's Crystal Palace in 1851. But the simplicity of the equipment required, and the flexibility of the code itself, meant that Morse code eventually became the preferred standard over time. By 1868, the refined system, known then as International Morse Code, was the standout for fast, efficient and reliable communication and remains today universally understood code. 
Morse code does not transmit language like voice on a phone, but rather creates a series of short and longer pulses of electricity, which can be heard as those familiar dots and dash noises that I'm sure we've all heard in some old movie. And so it does require the operator to learn the specific code in order to transpose the series of dots and dashes back into a readable message. Like learning any second language, many operators soon found they had quite an affinity to quickly and competently decipher incoming messages. It's worth noting that there are still Morse code operators able to communicate this way in defence signals and in other environments where other options may be unreliable. Just as an aside, I was once listening to some podcasts talking about curating the collections at the Smithsonian in America. They'd been collecting American army canvases, which contained graffiti written by soldiers being deployed to Vietnam. One set of markings on a canvas were noted as a series of Morse code dots and dashes, and they were described at the Smithsonian as representing a soldier's poem. The soldier on his way to the Vietnam conflict, had, in fact, marked down some Morse-coded words from an anti-war song onto his canvas. It was a song which was largely banned in America at that time, but which was nonetheless a widely known anthem of the anti-war movement in the 1960s. But it was not immediately recognised by any of the curators. Only years later, after they did a story on the canvases and the graffiti they'd collected, was the meaning of the coded words drawn to their attention. They were from Buffy St. Marie's Universal Soldier. And she writes, it was a song about, quote, the personal responsibility of all of us. We can't blame just the soldier for the war, or the career military officer, or just the politician. We have to blame ourselves too, since we are living in an era where we actually elect our politicians, unquote. In Morse code, the soldier, on his way to the front line in Vietnam, had written a couple of sentences from the song as his rather poignant graffiti. Quote, You're the one who must decide who's to live and who's to die. You're the one who gives his body as a weapon of the war, and without you all this killing can't go on. Unquote. In Morse, that first sentence would have sounded like this. So you can see it's still a time-consuming business preparing, transmitting and decoding Morse, but it's a rather large and speedy leap forward from a paper note being transported by a sailing ship. Anyway, Morse's system proved to be extremely versatile, and I'll put some links about the code and to a fun site for translating words into Morse code sound files on the Australian Histories Podcast episode webpage. Telegraph messages were composed and sent in Morse code by the use of a a key, a small device tapped by hand to open and close a small electrical circuit, thus making the dot-dash signal. Incoming messages would transpose those short and slightly longer impulses embossed onto paper ribbon or ticker tape, which could then be deciphered by the trained operator and transposed into an alphabetical equivalence and whole words. 
Telegraph systems were very soon being built around the world, usually by private companies recognising their massive income potential as wires strung on poles above streets, or even buried underground, with varying degrees of success depending on the quality of the wires and the distance covered and the strength of the electrical power transmitted, Boosting the electrical signal appropriately for the distance to account for the losses was necessary and insulation of the wires, particularly underground or undersea, was crucial and it took a while to get the equipment working reliably. In 1846, the insulating properties of rubber, described then as gutta percha, was recognised and proved useful underground. It was also applied to the cables produced for the underwater use, where it not only insulated the electricity transmission to reduce loss of current, but also protected the wires from corrosion under the seawater. The prospect that news might arrive at a distant destination around the globe in a matter of hours or days rather than weeks and months was very exciting, and despite the enormous infrastructure costs involved, would prove to be a boon to business, as well as a comfort and delight for those who could afford to use it for personal messaging. And it was very costly. The submarine cables cost £500 a mile to create in the day and cost a great deal more to lay. The unforgiving seafloors were not well mapped and the extremely expensive cables did frequently break or otherwise fail, often only a very short time after laying. Long-distance deep-sea transcontinental cable failures bankrupted more than one new speculating communications company during those early days. But so important was the necessary progress in communications that ongoing improvements continued and new companies willing to tackle the technical difficulties continued to emerge. Better cables were developed over time, connecting Europe, India, America and soon companies were set on connecting colonies in the southern hemisphere, additionally spurred on in Australia no doubt by the prosperity promised following the gold rushes. And so numerous proposals for connecting to the colonies in Australia were presented to the British colonial office and to the colonial governments themselves. The colonies were already creating embryonic local communication networks as the technology became available, but it was clear more ambitious projects needed to be planned to be ready to connect to the rest of the world. Telegraph experts would be needed in the new colonies to steer future developments. Victoria had the Canadian Samuel McGowan setting up their systems and and he built the first working telegraph in the country. For the free colony of South Australia, Telegraph Todd, as he was later to become known, proved to be the perfect man for the job, a polymath with particular interests in all the related areas that would encourage success of a telegraph project. He was also very personable, well organised and an excellent manager. Born in July 1826 in London to a shopkeeping family with ambition for their sons, Todd grew up with the Greenwich Royal Observatory on his doorstep. When he proved to be exceptional at mathematics, he was given the chance to learn and work at the observatory at 15 years old, employed as a supernumerary computer. (laughs) Of course, in that era, and indeed for many years afterwards, a computer was a person who could perform the intricate mathematical calculations that were required in many fields of science and navigation. Did anyone see that movie called Hidden Figures about the cohort of black female computers working for NASA in the 1950s who contributed to the development and success of their programs? Today it seems weird for us to call a person a computer, but it goes right back to Babbage and Lovelace. The Royal Observatory, of course, was crucial in providing the data required for naval navigation, contributing to the British naval supremacy over the many decades. 
The observatory kept accurate time, which was the crucial linchpin for worldwide naval navigation, and produced the important nautical almanacs used by ship's captains around the globe, and took astronomical observations which helped anticipate movements of planets, comets and other celestial occurrences. Progressing in time from the limited task of computing, Todd also undertook astronomical observations and recorded the meteorological data they collected. He noted many important phenomena, including recognising the electrical disturbances that the auroras seemed to cause to the telegraph equipment, known as the Carrington events. Todd was a dedicated innovator, and at the Cambridge Observatory was involved in a project to map the visible moon surface Along with the drawings that were being produced, he began experimenting with taking photographs of the moon's surface, though in the end he was dissatisfied with the results. Kreil suggests this at least demonstrated his willingness to try new technologies and proves his inquisitiveness and open mind to new developments, including the electricity and resulting electrical and resulting electric communication tools in particular, galvanism as it was known at the time. With the development and introduction of the telegraph as the new medium of communication, it was clear that the accurate time kept at Greenwich could be communicated remotely, particularly along the railway networks, allowing for uniform timekeeping across the country, thus allowing for the rail services to operate more reliably. Todd was at the forefront of the associated experiments in England that made that possible, both at Greenwich on their time distribution project and during the period he spent working at Cambridge Observatory. There were many setbacks and difficulties getting the potential to actually function reliably, but Todd was adept at sniffing out the obstacles, like getting better performance out of the batteries needed to boost the signals along the wires, despite their propensity for the contacts to quickly become oxidised, dirty and non-conductive. During this period, the South Australian government was in communication with Greenwich Observatory, asking for the recommendation of a man suitable to become their superintendent of electric telegraph in the colony a man also with, quote, desirable experience in astronomical and meteorological observation, unquote. Todd was soon offered the well-paying position, should he be prepared to travel to the Antipodes. The new and gold-riddled colony of Victoria had installed the first telegraph service in 1853, running between Melbourne City and Williamstown, and soon extended the line to Geelong, Queenscliff, and the goldfields of Bendigo and Ballarat where, Pew notes, its first transmission was news about the Eureka Rebellion taking place there. We talked about the Eureka Rebellion in the series of episodes from episode 29 to 33, but I don't think I mentioned the Telegraph. Todd was at this time around 28 years old, and the South Australian position would give him an income which would allow him to marry, but first he had to check that his wife-to-be would be amenable to traipsing halfway around the world to the very new free settler colony of South Australia. Luckily, the young Alice Bell was perfectly content to accompany him to Australia and accepted his proposal, the marriage taking place in Cambridge on April 5th, 1855. Young Alice was only 16 or 17, so it was quite an adventure she was undertaking, far away from parents and friends, very gutsy. But Todd was a man on a mission, Cryle quoting a sentence said to be from his wedding speech, assuring the families that they were soon to be leaving behind, that he was, quote, going to Australia in the hope of being instrumental in bringing England and Australia into telegraphic communication, unquote. Todd was authorised to recruit an assistant, and Edward Cracknell and his family would accompany the new Todd family on the boat out, once all the equipment had been purchased for the distant colony and other necessary preparations were made. 
Cracknell would work with Todd for a few years before being poached in 1858 by New South Wales to become their superintendent of telegraphs. These men were the whiz kids in demand of their day. An excellent planner and project manager, Todd also took the time to correspond with the famed explorer and former Surveyor-General Charles Sturt, inquiring about the local environments and meteorological conditions across the areas he had explored in South Australia. Todd gleaned valuable information from Sturt, including that white ants were the scourge of timber structures in the colony, knowledge that would prove very valuable for his future plans. Todd gathered the required electrical, meteorological and observing instruments, materials and equipment required for South Australia, as he was charged with getting a telegraph system in place between Adelaide and the port as soon as he arrived, and they set off in July for their five-month sea journey on the Irene. They arrived at Port Adelaide in early November 1855 to a city founded less than 20 years earlier. One of the things he was to note on arrival was the difficulty in getting enough reliable labour. Many a good man had headed east to try his luck in the booming gold fields. The other surprise was that there already seemed to be a working, if makeshift, telegraph line already in place between the port and the city of Adelaide. Given that constructing such a line was part of his brief, it seems the businessmen of Adelaide had tired of waiting for the government to act, and a local named James McGeorge had simply gone ahead with construction himself, expecting to be able to provide the service at a cheaper rate than the government anyway. And so he did for the first year or so that Todd's new line was in operation. But over time, as the government added extensions, their service soon outcompeted and outperformed McGeorge's original telegraph line. When that service ceased, Todd purchased McGeorge's equipment for £60 and dismantled his rough pole and wire setup. He was able to recruit a few of McGeorge's competent workers too, which proved helpful in the efforts to expand the South Australian telegraph network. Todd's telegraph included a stretch of submarine cable at the port and underground sections within the city streets, a very civilised option. And forewarned, he had begun to use Jarrah imported from Western Australia to alleviate the white ant problem. As they became better at the task, the local construction costs reduced and the lines were profitable in just a few years. So after Victoria's head start, Todd's 1855 Adelaide Telegraph was the next government service to open, with New South Wales running a line between Sydney and Liverpool in 1857. The most difficult obstacle Todd had to contend with over most of his career in South Australia, actually, was the divisive political environment he had to work within. And it was not just difficulties in the South Australian Parliament, but across and between the petulant rival colonies too. So nothing's changed there, I see. His success with the South Australian services was appreciated, and he was given the task of assessing and negotiating a shared line between Adelaide and Melbourne. Fortunately, his counterpart in Victoria, Canadian Samuel McGowan, had been the first to bring the equipment into Australian colonies in 1853 and was as uninterested in the parochial politics as himself, and they forged a very productive working relationship. Todd was convinced by McGowan, a past pupil of Samuel Moore's, that they should adopt that system, which would prove to be the superior system, and they authored an agreement which would define not just the technical issues and equipment to be used, but the cost-sharing arrangements, the time frame for construction, and they established agreed charges for the use of the service, proceeds to be equally divided between the colonies. They even outlined privacy rules to be applied to the services, which was nice to hear. 
Such an amicable and thorough joint agreement between two Australian states, well, colonies then, was remarkable. They were expecting to have their respective lines meet up at the border sometime in 1858, and impressively it did become operational in July of 1858. Of course, much of the route on the Victorian side would be constructed across already surveyed lands, beside existing tracks and roads, while much of the route on the South Australian side, with very little existing road or other infrastructure, would need to be explored and surveyed to identify viable routes. So predictably, it was a much more difficult task on the South Australian end, and Todd had his first extended foray into the largely unmapped scrub along the potential route as he rode back from the Victorian border to Adelaide. He scouted for suitable terrain and the availability of wood for poles, travelling 483 kilometres, or 300 miles, before arriving in Adelaide. In 1859, Tasmania, who had constructed their first internal lines just two years previously, before New South Wales actually, joined the Victorian network via an undersea cable coming ashore at Apollo Bay, though it would be a troubled connection until submarine cables became altogether more reliable. Victoria also connected their telegraph to the New South Wales network, who in turn linked up to Queensland, which had recently carved off from New South Wales in 1859 and managed to get themselves online in 1861. So the five separate colonial governments were all connected via fast electric communication by the early 1860s, running out from Adelaide and up and down the entire east coast. Western Australia, the most isolated of all the colonies, was the last to get on board with their first line internally only being constructed in 1869 from Perth to Fremantle. They would eventually join the rest of the Australian network, but only after the Overland Telegraph line was working and communicating internationally. Of course, they also had a massive distance to cover to meet a South Australian line at Eucla, but it seems they also took a lot longer to appreciate just how valuable this service would be. Indeed, the undersea cable had arrived from New Zealand at Botany Bay before Western Australia had got on board. The East-West line would eventually be strung along the Nullarbor and Great Australian Bight, with eight repeaters required to join the Eastern system late in 1877, at last providing communications clear across Australia. Once the South Australian Victorian cable telegraph was complete, Todd's attention once again returned to connecting Australia to the world, and there were a number of different proposals being considered. Potential options included undersea cables running from India to Western Australia's King George Sound, one from Java to the Gulf of Carpentaria and onwards overland to Moreton Bay or to Sydney, but Todd's preferred route would be the one with the shortest submarine cable, from Java or Timor to a northern point around Palmerston at Darwin, with an overland connection from there. He favoured bringing the line directly south to Adelaide, and thus onwards to the east coast and west from the land telegraph connections there. Each suggestion had its own set of pros and cons, along with the parochial and commercial incentives attractive to each colony. Todd, however, thought it was such an important piece of infrastructure that no matter which route it took, it should have been a joint venture between the states, the first federal project of sorts for Australia. But of course, the intercolonial rivalry and the usual bickering scuppered all his efforts to encourage cooperation, while the international cable companies continued to play one colony off against the other to get the best deal they could to reduce their costs. Todd favoured the longer overland telegraph route because of the high cost of submarine telegraph cables and its unreliability, with no easy access to fix any breaks. 
particularly given the unknown condition of the seafloor around the Australian coast, where it might fall across coral and rough terrain. And they needed to ensure the cable was safe from disturbance. In the early days of the first cable between Dover and Calais, only a few messages were transmitted before a fisherman had dredged up a piece of it. Clune records the fisherman had never seen rubber before, and he took it home to show his wife the exciting find. Quote, a new kind of seaweed with gold in it, unquote. <laughs> Apocryphal? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure that gold-coloured copper wire was being used at that point. But it's a nice story, though. And the break in the cable, no matter how induced, most certainly caused them grief. Of course, the submarine cables did get hardier and more reliable, but also more expensive. So the safest route was generally the shortest route for the investors, and Todd himself was sure that construction of an overland line would be cheaper per mile, and they would at least have a chance of repairing any break that occurred. But it was an optimistic idea. While Governor William MacDonald and Todd were convinced that South Australia could construct the proposed line, the overland option came with a whole other set of issues, not least that hardly anyone knew what they would encounter through the centre of Australia. Only one successful exploration team had yet made it across the vast Australian inland from south to the north coast, and all indications were that it was an extremely difficult environment, a distance of at least 3,200 kilometres, that's about 2,000 miles, into the largely unknown. Of course, there would be great kudos to be gained, income to be collected, possibly even a lucrative service monopoly for the colony successfully joining to the international cable. So there were many years of wrangling, competition, shafting, one-upmanship, etc., while negotiations were live. Fortunately, Todd had probably assessed correctly, and despite the enormous distance, his suggestion was likely the best route of all. But it took South Australia committing to funding it completely to seal the deal and they were able to agree to a very tight timeline to get the work done. At this point, most of the path they needed to take had barely been explored, and an exact route which might allow for water, telegraph pole timber, suitable terrain, and conditions for cartage and construction, etc., was yet to be surveyed and confirmed. They were optimistically making assumptions based almost entirely on Stuart's 1862 exploration notes, hoping that they were good enough to direct the construction project to success. The explorer John McDowell Stewart arrived in Australia in January of 1839 and worked as surveyor with the earlier explorer Charles Sturt. Sturt and Stewart, similar names and similar desires. Stewart accompanied Sturt, mainly exploring to identify suitable stock routes that might allow for the movement of cattle across inland runs, and the records and maps they created were very valuable to those hoping to traverse and open up mysterious inland in the search for minerals and grazing potential. Not so helpful for the Indigenous. Todd had already been in communication with Sturt and had gained a lot of intelligence from the notes recorded on his previous forays into the South Australia's inland, but Sturt's explorations had not progressed much further north than the Lake Eyre area. The experience of outback exploration with Sturt had appealed to Stuart, despite its hardships, and he was particularly keen to try and cross the as-yet unmapped continent entirely from south to north, despite Sturt and Eyre both being foiled in their previous attempts. When Stuart and his party did successfully make it to the north coast and back in 1862, his efforts helped the South Australian government lobby to annex the vast northern area we today call the Northern Territory soon afterwards in 1863, and it remained part of South Australia until it was returned to federal control in 1911. 
known in Adelaide as a solitary and hard-drinking man. When Stuart had a mission, he did dry out and was able to focus on his task. Unlike the infamous Burke and Wills, Stuart generally travelled with small, efficient exploration parties allowing them to move quickly and respond more flexibly to the terrain and conditions they found. As a skilled navigator and surveyor, he developed his talents in reading the country ahead, scouting for water and stock feed that would make forward travel possible. He carefully recorded his findings and mapped his progress, making notes about the terrain and local resources for those that might come after, and these detailed records were crucial to the planning of the overland telegraph line. But they were still travelling vast distances across country that was then completely unknown and extremely hostile to Europeans, unfamiliar with the outback. Stuart and his men were aware of the dangers involved, but the pull of discovery was very strong. In October 1861, Stuart and his party left for their attempt at a return trip to the far north coast, and over a year later, he returned to Adelaide triumphant, but, quote, white-haired, exhausted, and nearly blind, unquote. They had made it to the ocean on the north coast in July of 1862, recording on a document he left at the northern point, Quote, the exploring party under the command of John McDowell Stewart arrived at this spot on the 25th day of July 1862, having crossed the entire continent of Australia from southern to the Indian Ocean, passing through the centre. They left the city of Adelaide on the 26th day of October 1861 and the most northern station of the colony on the 21st day of January 1862. To commemorate this happy event, they have raised the flag bearing his name. All well, God save the Queen. Unquote. So, having planted the flag, they turned for home, but it was to be a gruelling return journey, and they only just made it to Adelaide at the end of 1862, in awful shape. It took Stuart a long time to recover, though that recovery would not have been helped by the fact that he immediately got on the turps on his return to civilization, and he drank enough in the following weeks to make up for all the missed time away. On the upside, Stuart's reports and maps were invaluable to Todd. In further assessing the possibilities for a telegraph line to the north coast. Despite the trials and hardships Stuart's exploration team had endured, particularly through the desert areas in the centre, he reported that the country in the far north was, quote, well adapted for the settlement of an European population, the climate being in every respect suitable and the surrounding country of excellent quality and of great extent, unquote. Having arrived in July, he would not have experienced the build-up to the wet season in the north, which punters can find oppressive even today, not to mention the wet itself, nor perhaps the worst of the searing heat and drought that can be unendurable for the ill-prepared in the central deserts. But with positive reports of a potentially productive north, at least, South Australia then succeeded in gathering the vast northern territories into its control, and the government could now sell or lease sections to help fund the expensive infrastructure plans. There were a few false starts getting the northern settlements established, but of course we know they eventually did flourish, though perhaps the imagined potential of the north as a viable food bowl for the country and export hub to Asia and onwards, a doorway to Southeast Asia, never quite panned out as the visionaries had expected. Todd's South Australian overland telegraph line route was the successful option in the end not necessarily because it was the most practical or the most cost-effective, but because the South Australian government was the most committed to the project. They were willing not only to entirely fund it, but they offered to get it done on a very tight timeline and were willing to pay penalties should they not get it built by the agreed time. 
These penalties would compensate the British Australian Telegraph Company, bringing the international cable to the continent, for any delay experienced in being able to earn transit revenues from all the potential cable traffic. Of course, once it was working, South Australia would get a good cut of those usage charges too, so their original outlay would eventually be rewarded. Port Darwin was identified as the best landfall point for the international cable, and telegraphic traffic would then be taken via the overland telegraph line to Adelaide, and would then continue on the existing telegraph links to the east coast, including Tasmania. Western Australia would join up at its leisure. After many years of competition, indecision, offers and counter-offers, in March of 1870, the British Australian Telegraph Company arrived in Adelaide, confirming they would bring the marine cable ashore, saying they were, quote, now in a position to state that the cable would be landed in Port Darwin if the South Australian Government will pledge themselves to have a landline open for traffic by the 1st of January 1872, connecting that port with the present system of colonial telegraphs and further that they beg to represent that to carry out the proposed scheme by the above-mentioned date, no time should be lost, unquote. In an ironic twist, the final communications to confirm arrangements between South Australia and the British Australian Telegraph Company took quite a substantial time to be finalised, as the messages and confirmations had to make their way in hard copy via steamship running between Adelaide and Colombo before it could be telegraphed from there to London. Dull! <laughs> You know what would have sped up that communication? Yep, that's right, an Australian telegraph connection. Immediately afterwards, the associated bill was put to the South Australian Parliament on June of 1870, and that left them with only 18 months to fulfil the contract across country for the most part with no other infrastructure, such as roads, stored water, buildings or equipment, or even known terrain. They were still to discover how reliable Stuart had been in his surveying and information gathering along the route, including things like availability of reliable timber sources to hold up the line. Calling it a vast undertaking was probably verging on understatement. Todd was under enormous pressure then to get the job done, though maintaining his usual calm, he certainly confessed to some anxiety over the huge logistical exercise to be undertaken. He wrote, quote, Perhaps for the first time I fully realised the vastness of the undertaking I had pledged myself to carry out. I was as sanguine as ever with regard to the practicality of the thing, but the short space of time allotted to me only 18 months greatly increased my difficulties. Unquote. But despite experiencing sleepless nights and anxious hours, he immediately began by just methodically preparing all the components needed for the project. His first estimate of cost at around £120,000 would soon be recognised as insufficient for such a mammoth task, but the project just had to be started, and the government would just need to find further funds as the project proceeded. Of course, all the areas earmarked for the telegraph route, through the centre of the country and surrounds, imagined as new pastoral land for the taking, was in fact still unceded country, occupied by a great number of Aboriginal tribes from south to north. Once again, no consideration was given to how the white settlements and infrastructure might disrupt their lives and eventually dispossess them of their lifestyle, cultural practices, food-gathering opportunities and movement. No permissions were sought. Probably the first most devastating change the locals would have to contend with was the pressure being put on important and fragile water resources, particularly in the arid central Australian sections, once construction began. Using the Australian Institute of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Studies 
map of Indigenous Australia, and just considering the original line of the telegraph only, not yet factoring in the land leases around it, a great many distinct tribal lands were crossed. Now, I'll just apologise in advance for my poor pronunciation, as I've not heard most of these names pronounced by any native speakers, so I'll just do my best here at identifying the language groups involved. They included, from Adelaide to Lake Eyre, Nukunu, Bangarala, Andiyamathana, Kiani, Tairari and Arabana. Towards the centre, through to the Tennant Creek area, the route would traverse country of the Arente, Aliarari, Ketej, Waramangu, and then in the northern section, through to Port Darwin, would have been even more highly populated with multiple tribes, including the Jingeli, Alawa, Yangman, Mangarale, Mangarei, Jawan, Ware, Kungarakani, and Larakia, with many others bordering or sharing lands affected by some parts of the marked telegraph route. Given the protocols and negotiations that would have occurred when entering each group's country, it's surprising, really, that the construction teams had such relatively little violence and confrontation at the time of construction. Keneally wrote, quote, At first, the Aborigines, through whose land the line passed, looked at it with some interest but did not seem to see it as representing the same scale of intrusion the new pastoral stations had. Occasionally they set fire to the poles, since they were good sources of fuel in a land of mere undergrowth, and the porcelain conductors looked fascinating, unquote. There persisted for a long time the idea that Aboriginal people living and travelling near the overland telegraph line would regularly remove the hard porcelain insulators to fashion into tools. But Todd himself confirms that, quote, interference from Aboriginal people, unquote, was exceedingly rare, only f- recorded five times over several years in its early operation. He does, however, comment that they had fashioned shards from broken insulators into, quote, tomahawks, of which I possess some very credible specimens, unquote. Once the Overland Telegraph and its repeater stations were set up, some areas did have more aggressive interaction with the local inhabitants as they established their outposts across Indigenous lands, especially where they had commandeered valuable water sources and placed their stock across important hunting grounds. Things only got worse as other explorers, pastoralists and gold prospectors also began arriving in larger numbers, and the authorities began deliberately hunting the first Australians off their lands. And as the numbers of incomers increased, so too, naturally, did their resistance. So while fewer violent encounters than I might have expected occurred during construction, at least, some areas did go on to have more sustained hostilities, leading to disproportionately violent reprisals on the Aboriginal peoples in the region. Using the notes and maps made by Stuart, Todd planned to build the line across three sections simultaneously, a south, north and central section. Even before the pending contract had been agreed and the bill passed to fund it, a team had been sent by Boat North to scout the Port Darwin landing point and the expected path southwards towards Roper River. They also wanted to discover if the Roper River was navigable from the sea to bring in the heavy supplies to a depot on its banks, close to the expected line for conveyance further south, and to confirm what local wood might be available for poles in that section at least. So with little time available, 
No further dedicated surveying could occur before the project was to start. Each section would have to use Stewart's maps and notes to identify their positions and work locally from their base camps to survey the line ahead in that previously described narrow corridor as construction began and followed on. The most difficult and least charted environment, the central section, was to be constructed by government parties under the direction of the Lands Office surveyors itself being further divided into five subsections to manage the resourcing along the distant track. The south and north sections would be sent to a speedy tender to be constructed by private contractors. The contractors would generally source their pole timbers en route, being laid, quote, 20 to the mile of hardwood or iron, 20 foot in length and planted 4 feet in the ground. Wooden poles had to be straight, rough saplings stripped of bark, 9 to 10 inches in diameter at the butt and 5 to 6 inches at the top, planted vertically in a straight line, and the ground well rammed, all done with the best and most approved workmanship. Unquote. Aside from the pole and wire construction itself, the telegraph line had to have a cleared corridor 15 foot each side, and at various stipulated places telegraph repeater stations were to be built. Obviously, in needing to cart the materials to site, construction tracks would be formed for movement between the poles, and camps for the workmen would also be required. It was a very significant logistical exercise, and the strict rigidity of the time frame was also made clear to the contractors, with substantial delay late penalties threatened for any overrun they caused. Luckily, the government had earlier placed orders for the urgent shipment of more than 2,000 miles of number 8 galvanised wire required from England, along with iron posts and wrought iron insulator pins. From Germany, they'd ordered 36,000 of the preferred porcelain insulators, so these all had to be transported to the depots inland across the vast 3,200-kilometre construction line. Todd's plans also stipulated the dimension and design of the associated buildings, along with food and equipment that the workers should be supplied with, and advice on behaviour expected in his 5,000-word instruction manual, particularly in relation to contact with the Aboriginal peoples they may encounter. For example, Todd gave specific instructions that his working parties were not to disturb camps or interfere with burial grounds and the like. In fact, in the hope of avoiding open confrontation, it was policy that there should be no communication with the Aboriginal women. The property of the natives was not to be touched, although obviously the concept that the land they were on was already the property of the locals was not considered. And no one was to visit the natives without special permission. But they were also prepared for trouble should it arise. Each worker was issued with a pistol for the purposes of self-protection. Certainly in the north, where indigenous population numbers were higher, Todd was aware they would have been seen as intruders to the lands of the several tribes around the telegraph line. Indeed, he noted there were, quote, two or three distinct tribes all speaking different languages, unquote. And these groups would have been the coastal Mara and Alawa people, and further south the Wilingura, and Jungman groups. Tellingly, he noted they all had quite complicated, quote, ceremonies when they wished to pass through territories of another tribe and go through a number of preliminary courtesies, unquote. So they knew about that, and yet the concept that the white men passing through should also have shown the same courtesies was not considered necessary. Todd wanted to run a tight ship, even when he could not be there himself. The contractors would have a couple of Todd's men within their working parties to confirm the quality of the work as they progressed, though they were given strict instructions from Todd not to interfere with the contractors in any way, unless the work was proving to be unsatisfactory. 
The 11 repeater stations between Port Darwin and Port Augusta would all require operational plant and equipment, instruments and batteries. And of course the operators would need to be able to live there safely and comfortably in pretty isolated sites for long periods of time. So they would each need to be carefully sited and constructed. Logistically the task was huge. They had to immediately contract for the massive amount of materials and general supplies required, haulage of the wire, insulators and possibly even poles in some places, to the remote construction sites. And they would need to purchase beef cattle and sheep to accompany the moving camps and provide fresh meat. They would need pack horses, bullock teams and even camel trains to move their camps and equipment, as well as to help with construction tents and kitchens along with staff to manage supplies, forward scouts and surveyors, doctors and other personnel required for such a massive venture all had to be recruited in a hurry and ready to be underway at the earliest for each section. The southern section was awarded to E.M. Bago, who was to quote, plant poles and string wire on them, unquote, 20 to the mile for around 500 miles, that's 800 kilometres, northward from Port Augusta. And this would have been the pick of the sections, as much of the southern area had at least been further explored and had some emerging development across the region. They would be less isolated in general and the conditions somewhat more familiar to the local workers recruited. Even so, already familiar with the area, as Bago was, there would be sections where timber had to be brought in from long distances and they planned to use iron poles in some areas. They began by erecting every second pole and stringing the wire along to progress quickly and thus allow actual use of the wires for communication along the line at the earliest, later returning to add the missing poles, iron being placed every second upright between the timber. Todd inspected the full length of Bago's contract, reporting, quote, it would stand for a number of years with very little attention, unquote. In the words of Fry, and since adopted as our family motto, not just good, but good enough. <laughs> so, though Pew added, they did have several problems resulting from lightning strikes, which destroyed the insulators and generally interrupted its operations. And afterwards they adopted the practice of earthing every second pole with an additional cable running to the ground. That unanticipated extra cost would have added up. Port Augusta at that time was an important port of transporting wool produced around the Flinders Ranges area. Pure reporting it transported over 10,000 bales in 1860. So telegraphic communications from Port Augusta to Adelaide had already been connected in 1866. The new section, the southern section of the Overland Telegraph Line, would run from Port Augusta northwards, increasing the reach of the communications from the south as they moved along. Repeating stations would be built in that southern section north of Port Augusta, at Beltana on Atnia Mathana country, where there was an existing station leased by Tom Elder. The next repeater station up the line was also to be built at Strangeways Springs, or Pangi Waruna, in the language of the local Arabana people. Like Beltana, Strangeways already had a pastoral lease running sheep in place at the time. The last telegraph station required for that southern section was built at the peak known as Kalturaka in Arabana. Again, a leased station was already in place there, west of Lake Eyre, and it would become the site of the depot and the staging post mentioned earlier for the central section heading further north. Business partners Delwood and Darwin won the northern section tender, and their task was much more fraught than Bagot's. They would need to gather more than 80 workmen, 
the necessary construction, living supplies and livestock and have it shipped all the way around to Darwin before they could even begin. If they couldn't make a good start before the wet season arrived, they may be stalled before they even got going. However, their contract reflected the difficulties they would face and they were to be paid around double per mile for their work than the southern section. Darwin to the Roper River had been surveyed, but the section after the Roper River would once again be forged through pretty much unknown country, except for Stuart's notes, joining the central section about uh, 1,030 kilometres in, that's about 640 miles. Their biggest issue would be the tropical weather. How would the livestock cope? Could they transport the heavy gear southwards across country that may become marshy or flooded, where there were no existing tracks or roads to use? The hauled vehicles likely to frequently get bogged and stall progress the wetter it got. But they began optimistically at least. In Port Darwin on September 15, 1870, a ceremony was held to erect the first pole. Clune describes it thus, quote, A hole was dug at the southeast corner of town where a peeled ironwood pole lay shining in the sun. A public holiday was proclaimed. A speech was made, and then Mrs. Delwood broke a bottle of wine on the pole and drove in the insulator pin. With a heave-ho, the hairy toilers hoisted the pole to the vertical and shoveled dirt into the hole. Then Miss A. Douglas rammed the earth with a hardwood rammer, polished for the occasion. In the name of Her Most Gracious Majesty Queen Victoria, I declare this pole well and truly fixed, and I wish the telegraph expedition every success, unquote. Cheers, hip And 21-gun salutes from the ships in the harbour followed the speech. Now, you don't get that when your crappy NBN connection finally arrives. <laughs> but it was a really big deal, actually. They were just about to begin construction on a line that would put them in almost instant contact with the rest of the world, boosting their economies, bringing them in current news from around the world, and providing timely communication between families separated by half a globe. It was a huge innovation and a massive leap into the modern world. Two days later, they had cleared the track and erected poles several miles southwards. Great start, chaps. At 20 to the mile, only 36,900 or so to go. <laughs> Beginning in September, they may have hoped to make good progress before the inevitable wet season difficulties they might expect, but they were to discover trying to transport heavy equipment in wagon loads across terrain with no suitable tracks and many areas already boggy would be pretty tough already. They did manage to move south about 300 kilometres, that's about 190 miles, before the wet arrived in earnest and greatly compounded their difficulties. Quote, the flour was dirty and full of weevils. The bread looked like currant cake when it was baked. The weevils swelled and burst in the dough in the camp oven heat. It discoloured the bread, but were obliged to eat it despite its disagreeable smell and flavour. No one would touch the rice as it was alive with tiny grubs. Until now, the men had laughed at the idea of the wet season stopping work, but now they knew better, unquote. The increasing bogs and damp conditions served to slow the momentum and depress the workers' enthusiasm. They complained about the conditions, the biting insects, the mouldering food now on offer, and even that was running out with no sugar left for their tea. But they managed to keep working right through the worst of the season. However, disquiet was increasing and the men seemed to finally reach the end of their tethers in March of 1871. Exhausted and unhappy, they simply refused to continue working. 
The government overseer for this section apparently did not have the diplomacy and negotiation skills that Todd was known for, and instead of negotiating a short break for the men to recuperate or, or suggesting some other circuit breaker to alleviate the desperation being displayed, he simply declared the tender void. The debacle dragged on, with no forward work undertaken for five months of the valuable dry season. With no lines further south to contact the overland telegraph line progressing from the centre, communications about the unfolding dramas were predictably slow, but Patterson finally arrived with his team in September of 1871 to take over the contract to lay the remaining 495 kilometres or 308 miles of line, just as the next wet season loomed. The tactless and haughty behaviour of the original supervisor did nothing to help keep the construction timetable on track, and he was soundly reprimanded when he did arrive in Adelaide to explain himself. Dalwood and Darwin were later given compensation for their rather rash dismissal. But the real disaster was the lack of progress and wasted time, contributing to the likelihood for potential hefty compensation that might be due now to the British Australian Telegraph Company too, for the delay in operational service. Todd hoped Patterson could get the project back up and running at speed. Patterson's team seemed to have done a good job getting work underway at speed, considering his crew was now also up against the same difficulties Delwood and Darwin's teams had experienced the year before. But, unusually, his way of addressing the problem seemed to rub Todd the wrong way. Related documents show Todd complaining of Patterson's actions, his slowness, and in return Patterson was annoyed by Todd's lack of trust in him and understanding about the conditions, particularly after Todd headed north himself to see what was going on. But, no doubt, now running seriously behind, everyone involved would have been under an enormous amount of stress and perhaps a few sour interactions might be expected. Conditions were still difficult and some of the men took opportunities to blow off steam when they could. In December of 1872, a group was camped with a series of wagons carrying supplies, but their horses strayed during the night and they were left stranded. Apparently, in their distress at their situation, they did note that amongst the supplies were two quarter kegs of rum. That's 40 gallons of rum in each keg, and so they thought to drown their sorrows for a time at least. The area of that camp came to be known as Rum Jungle. <laughs> a hotel of the same name is now in the vicinity. On sobering up, the supervisor thought it best to search for the horses, which, suspiciously, they did find. <laughs> so all's well that ends well, I'm told. Along with continuing construction southwards, they would need to put the northern telegraph repeater stations in. After Powell's Creek, there would need to be a station constructed at Daly Waters, and north of the Roper River, they had stations at Catherine or Umagallan, and then at Yam Creek, though apparently there was an additional temporary station between Daly Waters and Catherine, at Elsie Creek, which was staffed in the wet season when they had the most difficulty keeping the system running reliably in the early days, but decommissioned in 1885. The central section was expected to be the most difficult. The central deserts had the harshest environments, were the least explored and the most remote. Therefore, construction in the centre would be undertaken by government working parties overseen by Todd himself, and the task was further broken down into five subsections. To assist with the logistics of getting goods to each remote site, several depots would be laid along the likely track, relatively close to the line where they were expected to be needed. It was so far from either coast, so costly and time-consuming to travel to and to get materials to, teams could still find themselves in great difficulty if stock, food and water was not reliably available relatively nearby. Supplies had to be available for each subgroup to make camping and work possible. 
Groups scouted ahead in each subsection to find the exact best line for the poles, along with the straightest route possible, and to identify suitable sites for the repeater stations. When Todd's man Ross scouted ahead to identify the appropriate building corridor, Stewart's tracks would still have been visible on the ground in places. Pew reminds us that Stewart's horses would have been the first ever hard-hoofed animals to cross that environment, and while some Aboriginal people may have actually seen the men passing over their country, the tracks that remained must have been quite the curiosity for those coming across them in the following decades. A harbinger of the numbers of foreign animals and men that would follow Todd's crew in the years to come. Many more hooves would mark that fragile country, with the bullocks, sheep, goats and the regular riders tending and maintaining the wire strung through the vast outback. Clune wrote that, to ensure the considerable distances and challenging environments would not slow down the central teams, they were allocated 15 horse wagons, 18 bullet wagons and 5 additional buggies for speedier transport and communication once underway. This accounted for 165 horses and 210 bullocks, along with a great number of additional riding and pack horses, and what he called a string of 80 camels. Think about the food you need to carry just to feed the livestock when you're unsure of the availability of enough local pasture inland. They also took in a flock of 2,000 sheep just to start them off, and a drover named Harvey Bacon. Hmm, Bacon. Drovers brought other livestock in for food over the life of the project too. Their main central section depot would be set up at the peak cattle station on the Neils River, to which point it took fully laden bullock wagons about two months to reach, and they would need to return time and again and collect more goods for passing forward. The five A to E substation construction parties would depart from there, and a surveying and road section party set off ahead to mark a suitable route for transporting materials further inland, identifying the central sub-construction depot sites. These places needed not only to be on a line of terrain that wagons could traverse with their heavy loads, but have reliable water access, space and herbage nearby for travelling livestock, along with timber for harvesting to use as poles. Section A covered the 193 kilometres or 120 miles from the terminus of Bagot's southern section at the peak, northwards across what is now the Northern Territory border, past Charlotte Waters, where they would set up a repeating station Construction began there in 1871, while other section construction teams were still underway transporting their materials further inland. Pew notes the interesting equipment employed in their sections where timber was unavailable. They had chosen to bring in by camel German-designed, Manchester-manufactured Oppenheimer metal poles, which were telescopic so they could be transported more easily and extended once on site. They were expensive, so as soon as suitable timber was found with in-transporting distance, they reverted to that. But in future, when the pain of the cost blowouts had faded a little, they would go through and replace the poorer timbers, or those susceptible to termite attack, with metal, giving the entire structure more resilience and reliability. Section B was started in February of 1871, continuing north from the Fink River to the Alice River, past Chambers Pillar, a sightseeing landmark for those touring the centre today, for a total of 228 kilometres, or about 140 miles. Some of the poles placed near the river's edges were washed away in an early flood, so they were able to mitigate future risk by building large, masted towers on higher ground. To avoid a recurring problem there, the crews were able to complete their work by November of 1871, so it had been a very successful undertaking once the materials had been delivered to the depots.
Section C began construction in late March of 1871 and was completed by December, running from Lawrence's Gorge at the terminus of the previous section and onwards to the Reynolds Ranges covering 211 kilometres or 131 miles overall. It took some time to locate a suitable pass through the McDonnell Ranges, blocking access north, but after a couple of false starts, a wagon route was finally identified at Heavy Tree Gap, and having surveyed a reliable-looking waterhole on the Todd River, they named the area where they would site the repeating station Alice Springs, after Todd's wife, though Pew records the place name in the local language, Mpwanti Ampere. The town we now know as Alice Springs has grown up around that original telegraph station. Section D would carry the line from the Reynolds Ranges northwards for around 200 kilometres to 100, that's 124 miles, to just north of Barrow Creek where another repeater station would be built. The final subsection in the central construction program, E, would continue 173 kilometres or 107 miles to join up with the northern section. Getting the materials to that most distant point was a trying and time-consuming exercise, and work only began on that section in June of 1871. Though once underway, they were able to finish by November, and they were asked to continue on past their finishing point once it became clear there had been crucial problems in delays with the northern section heading southwards to meet them. Subsection E included construction of the telegraph station at Barrow Creek, with another further north at Tennant Creek, or Jernkurukur in the local language. Continuing north, the final repeating station required in that section was built at Powell's Creek, known by the locals as Pamayu. Meanwhile, in early 1871, they had already constructed the Overland Telegraph Line's first telegraph office at Palmerston, near Darwin, from local bush logs with a thatched roof of sorts. On November 7, 1871, the submarine cable had reached Darwin from Java in preparation for the agreed joining and operational date of the Overland Telegraph Line on the first day of the new year. A few days later, on November 20th, the first international signal came through on that cable, received at Palmerston's Colonial Telegraph Office, stating, quote, I have the honour to announce to you, in the name of the Telegraph Construction and Maintenance Company, that we yesterday completed a perfect submarine cable connecting your colonies with Java, the mother country and the Western world. May it long speak words of peace and reiterate Advance Australia, unquote. So from this date, Todd had only two months more to meet the promised overland telegraph line deadline, but progress on that northern section under tender had gone badly wrong and it didn't seem possible they could entirely make up the time. The Australian service would be late and they would be liable for substantial penalties. All they could do was keep working as fast as they could. Hopefully it would not run too far over in past the January 1872 agreed date. As the line advanced, messages could come through and could be set down the line as the connections extended, greatly reducing communication times as progress was made. Across the sections still to be joined, the messages were transferred via riders along the gaps in the route. Known as the Horse Express, their first message between London and Adelaide via that ad hoc method was communicated in June of 1872. Though running months late in completion by then, it was getting exciting to see the potential slowly coming to fruition. Soon after that message, though, also in June of 1872, the international cable suddenly failed, and communication from overseas was out of action until October. 
This was an embarrassing loss for the cable company, but given that the Overland Telegraph Line construction was proceeding in good faith, this break proved to be a blessing for Todd and the South Australian government because in the end, the British Australian Telegraph Company decided not to press for the late penalty payments they'd agreed to, given their own breakdown difficulties. Despite not having any international connection working, the Overland Telegraph Line from Port Darwin to Adelaide was, however, officially joined up and operational on August 20th. 22nd, 1872, eight months late, but two months before the international cable was repaired. The last point of connection was located in the central section near Fru's Ironstone Ponds, or Oralera. Author Derek Pugh described the scene near Fru's Ironstone Ponds thus, quote, At 12 noon, Robert Patterson climbed a ladder and grasped the two ends of the telegraph line in order to join them. He promptly received an electric shock. Unquote. <laughs> ah, so not the skilled technician you'd hoped for then. He also notes that earlier authors' writing on the Overland Telegraph Line history suggested Aboriginal people also become wary of the bite of the line, assuming that might be why they mostly left it alone. Hmm. The message sent from Darwin and transmitted down the now-functioning Overland Telegraph Line to the Governor of Adelaide stated... I have the honour to congratulate Your Excellency on the completion and opening of the Overland Telegraph Line. I trust this great undertaking will increase the trade and develop the varied resources of the colony and prove the pioneer of still greater works, uniting more firmly the various Australian colonies to each other and them to the mother country. God save the Queen." The sweet optimism for cooperation between the states. <laughs> Todd also sent messages from his camp on the line, thanking and congratulating the men of the working parties and sending a message intended for wide publication in the papers around the country, praising the South Australian government for their effort and expense in advancing the communications capacity for all the colonies through to the international connections. Many and varied complimentary messages came back in return and Todd remained at his post transmitting these backwards and forwards well into the night. Messages that would previously have taken weeks to arrive came through from north to south in a matter of seconds. This great leap forward was spectacular and most appreciated and those in Adelaide and all along the line partied and celebrated their impressive feat. As I record this in August of 2022, we find this month is the 150th anniversary of the completion of the country's first really big government infrastructure project, the more than 3,000-kilometre overland telegraph line, built in only about 26 months through the centre of a then largely uncharted Australian continent. It was the internet of its day. With the international submarine cable from Java finally finding its voice again, the first message direct from England was received in Adelaide on October 22nd, 1872. It was officially seven months late, but there was great delight in being finally seen to conquer the tyranny of distance. The excitement really ramped up. Of great interest was the news from Europe, coming through only a day or so after its publication locally, with around 150 cables received in the first week, increasing all the time. The speedy communications soon became the norm. People were only reminded of the vast and vulnerable connection limitations when the system failed, usually just for a day or two at a time. In the first year, over 4,000 telegrams were sent. 
The expenditure for outlaying the overland line had been nearly four times the original costing, but at least after the broken international cable, the late fees were not requested, given the international cable remained out of service for a further two months after the overland telegraph line was fully operational. But the expense had to be borne, and in the end it would be so well used as to recuperate its outlay in a reasonable time. Everyone was aware of just what an exceptional and heroic task had been undertaken to realise the dream. Most people understood just how phenomenal the feat was, particularly recognising Todd as the driving force behind its success, and appreciating the extraordinary work of the men who had physically undertaken the construction. Pugh quotes one newspaper report writing, quote, The men who have stretched the electric wire across the continent have had to do duty as explorers as well as telegraph constructors, and are conscious that had they not been resolute in spirit, they would have succumbed to the pressure of the hardships and discouragement to which they have been exposed. Especially is this true of the parties who for nearly two years had to rough it within the tropics, bearing up under delays and disappointments, the inclemency of the season, and the apprehension of the falling victim to the attacks of fever and scurvy. To all who have assisted the enterprise, but to the last in particular, South Australia owes a debt of gratitude. Unquote. Each repeater telegraph station built at regular intervals along the overland telegraph line path needed to house the equipment and battery banks required to send and receive the Morse code and to boost the electrical power signals along the galvanised wire to keep the electric messages moving forward. Nowadays we would set up batteries that could easily be recharged by wind and solar in such remote places, but in the day they were using rather primitive chemical batteries to create charge. Known as Mydinga cells, Pugh describes these batteries as, quote, made up of glass, about 25 centimetres tall, and producing electricity from the chemical interaction between copper sulphate crystals and a solution of magnesium sulphate on zinc and lead electrodes. Each cell produced about one and a half volts, unquote. So large numbers were required at each station, like at Daly Waters, where they had a bank of 350, for example. The chemistry is a mystery to me, but I think I can surmise they would have been incredibly heavy and many more would have been needed at the remote stations where resupply would remain diffic a difficult task to ensure that they could be recharged or renewed regularly so they didn't run out of juice and compromise the whole system. The 350 at Daily Waters would be turned over, in total, after only four months, so even running the system remained costly. These stations needed to be permanently staffed, and maintenance of batteries was an extremely important task of keeping the system running. Supplies of new batteries and replacement chemicals to keep the older ones running required regular resupply right along the entire line distance. The telegraph stations would keep their own stock and stores of other food staples and mail would be brought in regularly, maybe every six weeks or so to the remote stations, usually by camel train from the south and bullock or horse teams from the north. Todd, as the postmaster general for the new amalgamated post office and telegraph departments, retained influence and control over the resupply tenders, ensuring the contractors would deliver supplies and equipment in excellent condition or not receive payment, and his staff would be insured of good quality supplies, essential to make their isolated and somewhat dangerous postings more attractive. And while it was usual for stations to be staffed exclusively by men, soon some of the stations were staffed by families, much in the way lighthouse keepers often brought their own little communities to their environments. Some families stayed on for many years, such as at Alice Springs. 
Station staff and maintenance crews would need to be able to ride out for line repairs between the stations. Lightning strikes, storms, flooding and even fire probably took the greatest toll, short-circuiting the signals, and staff based at the repeater stations would look after stretches 200 kilometres either side, meeting and working with crews from the next station along with a fault near the middle. Regular maintenance and upgrading on the poles, attacked by ants and other boring insects, meant there continued to be ongoing work for linesmen. Pew records the service being out of action only 118 days in its first five years operation, which I think, all things considered, over distance and remoteness, is very impressive for a new technology. As mentioned earlier, lightning was probably the most frequent cause of damage, but for travellers who were now making their way into the previously unexplored interior, the overland telegraph line provided some reassurance. If they got into trouble, they could cut the line knowing that a repair team would arrive within a day or two to make repairs. Of course, that didn't always save you, even if you happened to have the tools and equipment and the physical ability to break the line. Pew recalled one story about a traveller in distress attempting to climb a pole and cut the line, then falling from height and hitting his head on a rock below. When found, it was clear that he had died right there from that fall. Todd had also ensured the telegraph stations had appropriate meteorological equipment and data was collected and records kept from 1873 onwards. He had been lobbying since 1856 for a network of observation stations across the country and he personally trained the observers in South Australia. Todd's long-desired Adelaide Observatory Complex and weather recording equipment, including the Todd family residence, was located at West Parklands between the ends of Curry Street and Weymouth Street, but was not completed until 1876. From 14 initial South Australian meteorological stations, the records from that overland telegraph line stations would vastly increase the data collection, and I'm sure the recorded data adds even today to the knowledge meteorologists and climate scientists can call on for their work. So, in fact, with the maintenance teams and supply contractors continually moving backwards and forth, traffic around the overland telegraph line was increasing as it was being used as an access point for looking for land or gold, along with drovers moving stock about and by an increasing number of the adventurers heading inland. And this was to bring ever greater grief to the Indigenous Australians on whose country the line stood. Construction of the line was not without its fatalities either. Moyle reports one telegraph operator... Cragen perished from thirst while riding between Charlotte Waters and Alice Springs. His two companions riding behind him only survived by killing a horse and drinking its blood. Ugh, gruesome. One linesman was lost in the outback, another drowned. She reports a teamster dying of consumption, though I suppose the Overland Telegraph line can't be blamed for that one. Though another worker around the Roper River died from fever, and tropical and wet conditions there may well have caused that fever. And in one of the books, I failed to write down the citation, I'm afraid, to confirm it just now. I think it was Clunes, reported that a worker sleeping on a boat on the Roper River, dangling his leg over the side, as one does in stifling hot conditions, trying to keep cool, was actually attacked and dragged into the water by a crocodile. As you can imagine, urgent warnings were sent to all camped in your swamps and watercourses to watch for crocodiles, but I'm guessing the men in that part of the river needed no further reminder after that horrific incident. Initially, the confrontations with the local Indigenous people along the path of the wire were surprisingly few, and while there seemed no consideration by the government that consultation might have been an idea, they did consider the security of the white men entering these areas might be a concern. And so confrontations were certainly anticipated. 
Todd gave instructions to, quote, deal moderately with the native inhabitants, treating them kindly but firmly and firing only at the last extremity, unquote. They were, of course, asked to avoid camps and in particular contact with the women. But the increase of the white settlers into the interior, further encroaching on and locking up Aboriginal land and resources, saw more inevitable clashes and incidences of violent resistance, more recently characterised as frontier wars. A number of telegraph men were killed by warriors defending their country, or as payback for various inappropriate behaviours, along with the loss of an unknown number of people from various tribal and language groups surrounding the line. Further, savage punitive actions might then have followed by both blacks and whites, but it must be acknowledged that the technology advantage always lay with the newcomers, and the numbers killed were way higher for the blacks involved. The telegraph stations would have been placed on water sources that were important for survival to the indigenous peoples, and may also have been culturally sensitive. The stock being run around the settlements may have caused damage to other water sources and may have displaced the native animals in the areas which might have been hunting grounds for essential food resources. It was a desperate situation in which resistance increased for a good number of years as more whites came into the areas to settle. In clashing with the whites on the stations, Pugh noted, quote, perhaps they were seeking revenge, were resisting the arrival of strangers in their lands, had been offended by the white men breaking traditional laws or were responding to interference with their women, or perhaps they just wanted food and equipment, unquote. One well-known battle took place in February of 1874 at Barrow Creek Station, which had been built around an Aboriginal waterhole. Compounds in this mid to northern area, where early hostilities had taken place, were designed to afford a defensive retreat. Miniature forts, as one occupant would describe them, complete with rifle holes for firing outwards. But one Sunday, when the station inhabitants were at rest outdoors, they were suddenly attacked by the local Kaditsha people with spears, causing three fatalities, as well as several injuries, before they could retreat inside to their weapons and fight off the Kaditsha warriors. A report was immediately sent via telegraph, and mounted police and other riders were immediately sent off to assist at Barrow Creek. The staff claimed they could identify some of those involved, and so arrest warrants were drawn up. But this was not a successful tactic, and various punitive expeditions followed over several months, resulting in indiscriminate massacres. Many Aboriginal men, women and children perished in the aftermath. The Colonial Frontier Massacres in Australia, 1788-1930 website, has gathered much evidence for an appalling number of these kinds of actions. And keep in mind, because they were relying on reports usually made by the white men there, we can imagine that these reported ones are only the tip of the iceberg. Many reprisal attacks would have taken place with no one bothering to record or report them. Following the Barrow Creek incident, there were at least two documented massacres of those local Kaiditcha people, though those undertaking the actions preferred to call it a dispersal. It just, it just makes the most desperately sorrowful reading. The inhumanity displayed at the time, just awful. Between the 18th of July and the 31st of July, it was reported that 30 men, women and children were killed in that first reprisal, with the leader of the party writing, We know now where the native camp is, and I want your authority to go out and try and disperse the whole tribe. They are about 15 miles west from the station and may do much more harm, if not specifically checked. 
Keep in mind when he says disperse, he means murder. There's no record in that document about Todd's response, but we know he was shocked by the loss of his men at the repeater station, and his attitude would have hardened. So the frontier war around that region was well and truly underway. Between February 22nd, 1874 and April 1874, further mounted police and government officials were again sent out for another dispersal. The police and parties of men came up from the Tennant and the Alice and from lots of other places, and I can tell you they did some pretty serious shooting too. At least 80 people were killed in that single massacre event, and they continued to scout around for many weeks, picking off and murdering people in twos and threes as they came across them. I don't know, it was really distressing reading. We can celebrate these fantastic advances, but there's such a huge and heavy price that the Indigenous paid right across Australia for these advances. Like all of the colonisers who expected to simply walk in and take over, those involved in this project were disturbed and concerned about the ongoing resistance, quite often from different language groups, clans and tribes. Newspapers were calling for this kind of reprisal. A similar attack took place in Daly Waters, with the station master there being fatally wounded, and we can assume the murderous response would have been similar there too. Over the years, as the local Aboriginals were further dispossessed and hunted out, the stations became their last places of refuge, like some of the cattle stations had become, with some Aboriginal men and women taking on employment in the telegraph stations. In Pugh's very detailed book on the history of the construction of the Overland Telegraph Line, he undertook a pilgrimage, as he called it, along the original line as far as was possible. It's said that the Stewart Highway runs roughly along the area of the telegraph line, but of course it has moved over the years, much of it being realigned to the next to the railway line that was soon afterwards built into the interior. And some of the original stations were relocated at that time too. In following the actual old track, Pew notes that most of the original repeater buildings are now just ruins, if they remain at all, and that much of the original line of the Overland Telegraph line is obscured and difficult to find. He noted the following points of interest on his discovery tour, beginning with the Port Augusta Telegraph Station, which was of course already in place to communicate with Adelaide before the extension northward was created. The town celebrates a telegraph story with information boards and maps illustrating the OTL route as well as the present-day Stuart Highway, sections of which do roughly follow Stuart's original survey. And it seems the original Port Augusta Telegraph building itself remains and still operates as the post office there in the centre of town. The next station was the first built on that new southern section at Beltana. Though Pew advises the stone telegraph building there, completed in 1875, replaced a temporary building erected by Bago during the line construction, and though it was demoted in importance in 1913, still operated as a post office and communication hub until 1940. The buildings around Beltana are now all privately owned, though he describes the settlement as looking pretty proud of their history, with visitors allowed to look around the complex and view the information boards there. Pew also notes that Australia's first homegrown camels were bred at Beltana from stock brought in from Pakistan, though of course other imported camels had been brought in from India and Afghanistan a lot earlier, from the 1840s onwards. He suggests overall around 3,000 cameleers eventually made their way to Australia, skilled at caring for and working these extremely useful pack animals for the outback, unfamiliar to the general western explorers, but extremely well suited to travel through the interior 
Many British were reluctant to use them over the familiar horse and bullock teams, so they really needed the camelias to get the best from the animals. Known in the day as Afghans or Gans, they actually came from various countries, including Egypt, India and Turkey. Strangeways Springs already had some settlement by the time of the OTL, and then running sheep, and some structures remain. The area had some connections to the Kidman and Co. cattle empire, but Hugh notes that remnants now sit within part of Anna Creek Station. We spoke of Anna Creek Station in episode 28 about the dingo fence, noting it is the largest stock lease in the world currently. The Peak Telegraph Station was built near the previously existing Peak Station, an early pastoral lease, and is now also standing on part of Anna Creek Station lease. Pew records it was once a substantial cluster of stone buildings, but now only extensive ruins. At the time of construction, Peak was pretty much the northernmost line of settlement. The telegraph building there operated for 20 years before being relocated to Udna Data beside the railway line. Pew says Charlotte Waters, just over the Northern Territory border, is marked by no more than a scattering of stones and the information boards were weathered and useless. It seems the telegraph station was abandoned around 1938. Alice Springs was the next, with the Telegraph Building surviving today, now presented as an impressive museum. It is possibly the most well-known remnant of that original Overland Telegraph Line construction. The museum houses much equipment from the era, and a Morse code operator is apparently available at various times to show visitors the process. The Alice Springs complex ran as a family home for much of its working life, and one of the children who grew up there wrote a memoir about living at the station much later in life, and I'll put those bibliographic details in with the list on the episode webpage if you're interested. Alice Springs' old telegraph office closed in January 1932. Barrow Creek also sported a sturdy stone-built telegraph station, and this is where Todd was based for the final connection and first messages once the construction was complete in August of 1872. Sited now next to the Barrow Creek Roadhouse, it's easily found. By 1910 it was still operating as a post office and maintenance depot, but a telegraph repeating station no more. Weirdly, it was still in use as a line depot for telecom in 1980, the last linesman leaving there in 1986. Pew reminds us it is now managed as a historic site under the care of Parks and Wildlife. The Tennant Creek building is also still standing and maintained as a historical site. Powell's Creek Telegraph Station buildings are now about five kilometres off the highway. The building shells mostly surviving, but no longer with anything inside. Pew also stopped off at the joining point near Fru's Ironstone Ponds, finding signage from the main road, about 20 kilometres south of Dunmurra Roadhouse. A track leads you through to a pole marked Pole 4E28, with plaques nearby, a National Heritage Marker, and one from Engineering Heritage Australia, and it looks like this small section of line remains intact on those telescopic Oppenheimer metal poles. That's fantastic news. A nerdy sight to see when I can get back into the outback one day. Taylor Waters was the next, and Pew reminds us it now has a wealth of other historical claims to fame too, mainly from World War II, and it is quite the stopover for the visitors coming through. But the telegraph building itself does not survive, being originally constructed of timber slabs and corrugated iron. There was a short-lived temporary station at Elsie Creek and Pew did look, but the exact site seems to be lost. Catherine is now a very substantial regional town, sited slightly away from the, from the first placement of the line, but the telegraph station building no longer survives. 
He notes that the large pylons built to resist the regular floodings through Catherine still stand on either side of the river and the station would have been near one on the south bank. The Yam Creek building was constructed of timber and the line was relocated to be closer to the railway in 1886, but nothing remains at either site. Pugh notes when he visited there was very little at Darwin itself to mark the original telegraph station or the feat of ingenuity engineering and technology, except some rather well-hidden plaques on a memorial plinth. Certainly I missed it when I was visiting Darwin and nosing about a few years ago, with the World War II stuff making more noise. Though to be fair, I wasn't very aware of this story then, and certainly I was not looking for related sites. Pugh is hopeful with this year's 150th anniversary, perhaps some more enlightening and interesting information might appear. Me too, so we'll see. With deliveries being made on a regular basis to repeater stations, they became formal post offices for the surrounding settlements and stations over time, too, getting deliveries as part of the government postal system. For example, in January of 1878, Alice Springs Telegraph Station became a post office, with a delivery service every six weeks. The line was well used from its beginning, and continual maintenance and improvement were invested throughout its long life of use. By March of 1898, they began replacing the number 8 galvanised wire with the much more suitable copper wire. With copper, a much superior conduit for electricity, less electrical losses were experienced and the better quality signals could proceed further without the need for continual boosting. In 1899, a second line was installed, further increasing the communication capacity of the original pole constructions. With Federation in 1901, responsibility for telegraph, post and similar communications transferred from the states to the new federal government overnight. Modernisation and automation continued over the years as progress in technology advanced. In the first dec decade of 1900, automatic telegraph repeaters reduced the need for operators to interpret and duplicate incoming messages forward but it would be the coming of telephony that would eventually reconfigure the lines and extend the way they would be used into the new century. The transmission of voice directly would become the new wonder of the telecommunications world, albeit mediated through operators to connect the various lines. Melbourne was once again first cab off the rank with a local phone service. In 1880, the Melbourne Telephone Exchange Company had a list of 43 subscribers including the Apollo Candle Company, various banks and insurance companies, and the business and private residence numbers for one H. Byron Moore. It was suggested that the telephone system, quote, enabled a man sitting in his office to ask his bank manager for an overdraft, order a coat from a tailor, and send his wife any reasonable excuse for his non-appearance at home at the usual hour, unquote. Oh, and haven't we come a long way? Now we have tiny mobile devices in our pockets which allow us to phone our bank. Well, obviously not the manager. Nobody knows what a bank manager is these days. And be redirected around and around an automated service with a plethora of slightly inadequate selections for our actual need before waiting 20 minutes to be answered, being told how important our call was to the bank, before finally being cut off entirely. Surely more excruciating than being shocked by electric current, connecting and using the old-fashioned telegraph. <laughs> the First World War interrupted the development of the telecommunications services, but technological innovation and increased use came from it as well. And of course, early radio communications were being tested during that period too. 
With the approach of the Second World War, particularly after the Japanese entered the Pacific, the overland telegraph line retained its important role in telegraphic connection north to south. Modernised by then, largely automated and connected to teleprinters, working on reliable copper wire, with two-way simultaneous transmitting and receiving capacity, it was still a very useful tool, further upgraded during 1941 to function particularly when radio transmissions might be jammed. It would be run and maintained jointly by the PMG, that's the Postmaster General, and the Army Signals Corps during those fraught years, and operators would at times revert to old-fashioned Morse code with a key directly attached to wires when emergencies occurred and the automated equipment failed or was damaged. On February 19, 1942, the technicians at Alice Springs noted they had lost communications with Darwin. Assuming a break in the line somewhere close to Darwin, they set up the diagnostic equipment on the line to investigate and monitor when the repair had been undertaken. After some time, they noticed some movement on their equipment. One man saying, My God, that's Morse! They plugged in something called a sounder onto the line, and he was able to translate the message as, quote, Darwin bombed at 10am, no known details of damage and loss of life, unquote. And this would have been shocking news, but it was about to get worse. Since December of 1941, most civilians had been evacuated and Darwin was largely a military town at that time, as there had been regular Japanese activity in the air. But they were about to experience their first full air raid. One of the operators, Halls, had been testing the circuits to Adelaide earlier that day and had transmitted, quote, There's another air raid alarm. I'll see you shortly. Then... The Japs have found us, and their bombs are falling like hailstones. I'm getting out of here. See you later, unquote. Followed by a signal equivalent to a smiley emoji. Three dashes and a dot, apparently. Poor Halls was amongst nine people killed that morning in a direct hit on a shelter at the post office complex, and the overland telegraph line capacity there was completely obliterated. Supervising engineer Hawke was able to retrieve a Morse code sounder from the rubble and Duke, another telegraph operator, made their way out miles south down the line where they were able to attach the wires and send that first message advising of a Japanese air raid. Later they moved further south about 21 miles from Darwin and sent further coded messages including advice of a second raid. While the news of the raid was passed to the public, information on casualties and damage was limited. Moyle notes that papers reported casualties between 15 and 19, when the total death toll was actually closer to 250, but such deliberate misinformation to keep the morale up was common during the war. Communications were soon re-established from the RAF base at uh, Larimar, 116 miles south of Darwin, and the post office was rebuilt in Darwin post-war. Of course, poor old Darwin would take another devastating direct hit on Christmas Eve, 1974, when Cyclone Tracy arrived with winds of up to 200 kilometres an hour, destroying houses, infrastructure and communications across the area. With 65 dead and hundreds more injured, the town was isolated and in a dreadful state. The Overland Telegraph line had largely become obsolete by then, but telephone wires as far as 25 kilometres south were destroyed and the radio communications towers and buildings were also badly damaged. Moyle reports that the only communications link still operational was a single circuit on the microwave system linked to Catherine, Tennant Creek, Mount Isa, Townsville and Brisbane. 
news of the disaster not reaching the east coast until 8am on Christmas morning. Certainly the poles and wires of the old overland telegraph line were vulnerable to weather, insect infestation, rot, rust, fires and even flood, but they served pretty well on into the 20th century, also carrying the newer telephony technology in some places. And Cyclone Tracy proved that radio was not impervious to damage either. The Argus in Melbourne excitedly wrote, after the first system was set up there in 1853-4, We call the electric telegraph the most perfect invention of modern times, as anything more perfect than this is scarcely conceivable, and we really begin to wonder what will be left for the next generation, upon which to extend the restless enterprise of the human mind, unquote. <laughs> OK, Boomer. The Argus would have been completely dumbfounded at Tim Berners-Lee's little World Wide Web, wouldn't they? <laughs> so the telegraph's time came and went, really. Radio and satellite services are now filling the communication gaps in the vast and still isolated interior. In 1982, most of the original overland telegraph line poles and cables were removed, for safety reasons, one assumes, but what a pity. Hugh suggests, considering the enormity of the original rollout, there is little left to mark its past presence, but broken insulators and the base of poles when you can find them. But time and technology marches on. We had radio in the 20th century which really made a difference to life in the outback, facilitating the school of the air, the flying doctor service, and just general communication between stations, vehicles and communities. Pew also notes that more recently, 150 years after the Java cable arrived in Darwin to make international communications possible, a, quote, $500 million system of high-capacity data cables was proposed between Darwin, Jakarta and Singapore, unquote. So we're not giving up on submarine cables just yet, then. Anne Moyle called Todd's undertaking the most significant feat of engineering in the 19th century Australia, unquote. And it really was a spectacular and potentially risky undertaking. But like the Snowy Hydro's choice of project manager, which virtually assured its success in recruiting the quietly impressive Todd, they had serendipitously assured that they had the perfect architect for the job. He had no personal massive ego to feed. He had the right skills and aptitude to recognise challenges and find solutions to manage them. A family member writing his entry for the Encyclopaedia Britannica, mercifully writing after his death, described him as having, quote, no commanding personality, unquote. A backhander if ever I heard one. But he did have just the right mix of concern for his workers, vision for the project, and skills in management to keep it on track. As, quote, a key technical figure in Australia at a time when its colonies were increasingly divided over their geopolitical loyalties to competing international cable routes, unquote, Todd was able to rise above the parochial and recognise the project as big enough and important enough to be shared. Try though he did, he lost that argument to smaller minds, but he was able to correctly assess the best options and created a reliable service that saw use well into the 20th century. He remained in South Australia for the rest of his life, working tirelessly and productively as a public servant. And many reaped the rewards of his services Todd put into being for his fellow South Australians. Well, fellow Australians, actually. Always recognising the contributions of others and willing to hear out his critics, he was the commensurate scientist, serving his field of endeavour well as a, quote, skilled networker, a good people person, a good strategist, and above all, a great manager, unquote. And this might not be the sexiest description of an Australian hero, but those quiet people who just work, ego-free, to make our lives better deserve more recognition than your average sports star. 
Todd was recognised for contributions to the development of the country with a knighthood in 1893. I've got a great podcast recommendation this month, especially for those who enjoy listening to a podcast to wind down at the end of the night. For those who enjoy a good story and a relaxing listen, Sandman Stories offers you exactly that. Hello, listener. Do you like folk tales? Have you heard the one about the Little Mermaid? You have? Hmm. How about Little Red Riding Hood? Oh, you heard that one too. Well, how about you come along to Sandman Stories Presents? On Sandman, you'll learn the stories of Sulambara and Gulambara from Georgia. You'll hear stories of Anansi and his son Kwekutsin from Ghana. You'll hear stories from Korea, Japan, Nigeria, South Africa, Louisiana, the Philippines, Bengal, and many, many more. All over a sound bed of natural noises designed to calm your busy mind after a long day. So come along for an adventure, meet new places and people, and I won't be mad if you fall asleep and need to rewind and listen again the next day. Again, that's Sandman Stories Presents, anywhere you find podcasts. Thank you, and good night. As always, I will place a link to the Sandman Stories details in my webpage at the Australian Histories Podcast website. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed hearing about Todd and the Overland Telegraph Line. Pew's recent history called 20 to the Mile is well worth a look if you'd like to learn more detail about how the line was planned and constructed, along with the many anecdotes from construction. Kryle's book on Todd called Behind the Legend, The Many Worlds of Charles Todd, is a recent and very thorough biography about a truly interesting man. The Overland Telegraph line was impressive enough, but Todd was instrumental in a great many other developments that had wide range of interests that informed his life's work. Well worth a look. Finally, Frank Clune's much earlier history of the line still makes very interesting read. As always, the details of these and other references I used are on the episode webpage. I do thank you for sticking with me with this terrible, terrible voice. I hope it wasn't too awful. It's a bloody long episode, so what voice I did have is completely conking out again now. I am going to take a short breather through September, and I'll have something new for you in October. Another great Australian history from our past. Take care, and I'll talk with you again soon. Cheers. Cheers.